to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing career, creativity, and community. I'm your host, Janet McKenna Lowry. In a little while, we'll have the second half of our conversation with entrepreneur and motivational speaker Tim Fisk. First, though, I have to tell you about a book I just read The No A Hole Rule, which is actually the real word, but since this goes out on the radio too, I'm going to refer to it delicately for FCC reasons. This is a book that somebody told me about just a couple years ago, and I had it in my head that I would read this, although I also, from the synopsis my friend told me, I also knew I would love it, and I do. The author is Robert I. Sutton. The chapters are What Workplace A-Holes Do and Why You Know So Many, The Damage Done and Why Every Workplace Needs This Rule, how to implement the rule, enforce it, and keep it alive, how to keep your inner jerk from getting out, what happens when a-holes reign, and how to survive those people and places, the virtues of a-holes, and the no a-hole rule as a way of life. Sutton believes there's a difference between temporary a-holes, who might be just be having a bad moment, and certified a-holes who are permanently nasty. I think this is a very important distinction. This sort of goes into that Brene Brown thing of assume the best of everyone. There's a real difference to someone who has a pattern of this and someone who you've given the grace of saying, well, that's not like you. And that's not to say they should be allowed to get away with real a-hole behavior if it is temporary, but it is a very different approach to this a-hole thing. And, And this came about because he was working at Stanford and they were looking at hiring a new professor in the department and somebody said you know he's brilliant but apparently no one can work with him he's just such an a-hole he's a problem wherever he goes and they decided in the department no that's not worth it and then this became the no a-hole rule he talks about famous bosses who have weakened their positions Uh, Michael Eisner Scott Rudin terrible terrible people who have made life hell for everyone around them. And I think that time component is something that probably could do with a little more of a deep dive because he he talks about these people, like if you take a slice of Michael Eisner or even Scott Rudin or some of these, uh, Weinstein, there is a time when they look like what they're doing is effective. But the negative effects are cumulative to what they do. The liability is over time. And I think people need to have a way to talk about this if they're affected very badly, which everybody is when there's a terrible a-hole running things, is to talk about the time component. This may seem like something to put up with right now, but in the long run, you're losing a lot of money. And that goes on later, they talk about it. But I do think that that's something that has to be discussed every time. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute when we talk about times that a-holes have been effective. He makes the point that it's kind of a curve. On the one hand are going to be a-holes, but that doesn't mean you just find spineless, collapsible people who can't advocate for themselves. Like the opposite of an a-hole isn't a doormat. The opposite of an a-hole and a doormat are people who come up with good ideas and help everybody else, somebody who can challenge an idea. Pixar is incredibly effective with this. They have these challenge rounds around their 
creative process. But there are people, and unfortunately, a lot of times they are running a business or in HR and protecting those who are running a business, where they're going to argue that the a-hole is effective. And that's where that time component comes in, because you can translate the value of time into the value of money. And people who work in these environments have heightened depression, anxiety, and burnout. Treating people as invisible, so giving people nasty stares, which sounds so mild, and I would actually use the word contempt. Anytime that people have to work in an atmosphere of contempt, physically and emotionally, they are going to die a little. They're also not going to give their best work. Gallup poll has a really great thing on this about how many employees, it's like 73% of all employees are checked out. And the phrase they use, which I love, is presenteeism. So you have a problem with absenteeism because people get sick more often and also they do not want to be in the workplace. But the other problem that's subtler is presenteeism, which is they're present at work. They came to work today, but they had to spend a lot of the day working in spite of the awful circumstances, working in spite of the awful people, trying to get the work done, also often checking job listings, doing their resume, trying to get out. And a-holes don't just affect victims. They affect bystanders and witnesses. So every workplace that has someone like this, it's not just the targets that are the, whose, whose lives are being diminished and whose work is being diminished and cognition, but it's everybody there that witnesses this. And although Sutton doesn't really go into this, I have worked at places that had a real customer-facing side and catering to customers who are a-holes, who say abuse your staff or where you're bending policy to accommodate the a-hole, all the other customers that witness this will drop you. You gain one customer, you lose 10 and word goes around. He's got some studies about sort of the workplaces themselves. A British study found they studied more than 700 employees in the public sector and found that 73% of witnesses to bullying experienced increased stress and 44% worried all the time of becoming targets themselves, which is a form of sort of low-grade terrorism. And I got to say, I am not a fan of the word bullying, especially in this kind of context. It's become like the word, but to me, it feels like, you know, some kind of old-fashioned kids from the 20s giving another kid a black eye. I understand that it is the kind of behavior that happens in schools and under the radar. It is so serious, that kind of violence and intimidation and assault and stress. Everything about that is far more important and life altering than the word bullying feels like it accomplishes to me. I do think it's like localized practice terrorism. You know, we for whatever reason, we have a distinction of domestic violence. Well, this is school violence or this is workplace violence. And I really don't understand why we would make this weird distinction of using, of almost diminishing it. I do know that it's used like that. I object to it being used like that. And I actually think that making it such a minimized thing where we have people that are 
indulging in this kind of violence and sort of localized tiny community terrorism when they're young that is a massive red flag cry for help for the need for attention and services in that kid when we're talking how they don't get that and they become the same kind of figure in the workplace again first of all red flag cry for help they these people do need help but everyone around them needs to be protected from them so the word bullying just feels a little too minimizing for me and especially for the amount of damage they do so researchers have started using studies to calculate the TCA the total cost of a-holes which is great these two researchers Rayner and Keishley have found that 25% of bullying targets and 20% of witnesses leave their jobs like it's a hostile workplace and what that means is since the average rate of this kind of intimidation is 15% in the UK, which I'm sure the US is comparable or more, if 25% of victims leave a company of 1,000 people, and if the replacement cost for those 25% is $20,000, and the annual replacement cost is $750,000 to the organization. If 20% of victims leave and there's an average of two witnesses for each victim, then the replacement cost is 1.2 million. And the total replacement cost is just shy of $2 million. How would that ever be worth it? There's an example of a Silicon Valley organization that had an employee who they ended up totting up how much his treatment of others cost the company and they found it came in at $160,000 and the company deducted it from his bonus and he was furious and that's a really effective way to deal with it. You're no longer bringing in the money that you say you are because you are hemorrhaging it on the other side due to your incredibly unprofessional and poor treatment of others. I'm so behind this. This is great. Sutton has this idea, though, that I don't necessarily agree with, which is the value of a-holes, that having a couple of token jerks in the company, co-workers will observe their bad behavior and be more likely to do the right thing. He had this idea of a norms of in a parking lot, if it was a clean parking lot, the first person to drop trash would suffer some kind of community shame. I don't buy it. I don't think that's how this works at all. And I also think that it is cruel. If this is the case, then you're doing sort of a deliberate set up somebody who has self-regulation issues, self-regulation problems, and they're being allowed to be like that so that the others can use them as a bad example. Or I don't understand how you would ever manage that in a healthy and positive way. I also don't understand how you would create a workplace where you are anti-a-hole except this guy. That's gonna do the next thing, which he's absolutely right about, which is that this stuff is infectious. A-holery infects other people. Many companies have written versions of the no a-hole rule, but few entirely abide by them. Bear that in mind as you are looking for jobs or looking for clients. 
just the fact that they know what this is, the fact that they say that they don't hire or tolerate bad behavior does not mean that they don't. A lot of times this stuff is in sort of the unwritten tacit kind of areas of, except this guy who's such an effective sales guy, except this woman who, you know, knows our system inside. And there's always, if, it, if there's always going to be exceptions, then their intolerance of this kind of behavior doesn't matter. So he has 10 things to look out for. If you are a company, say the rule, write it down and act on it. Make sure that companies you want to work with or work for do this. Know that a-holes will hire other a-holes. And this is one of those lessons that in 2015, I got a job and I wish I had known how to ask about these things. Because when all of everything became unbearably stressful and awful there because of a couple of a-holes, I then found out that the owners were the source. If you don't want them in a business, get rid of them fast once they emerge. Because a lot of times you don't know. Again, that time component. Treat certified a-holes as incompetent employees. And I have to say, and I know this is going to sound a little weird, especially given the topic of this, when you treat them as incompetent employees, give them the chance to not be a-holes. Because a lot of people have never learned or understood how to regulate themselves. Give them access to deep mental health assistance because ultimately this will benefit this person. It'll benefit your company because you won't have to lose all the training or whatever else you put into this person. You won't have to lose the people around them. If it's possible to support the turnaround for an a-hole, I would argue that we all have a duty of care to try that, to do that. But again, like incompetent employees, you have them in, you discuss the goals, you discuss the issues that are coming up, you discuss options for them to address those issues. And if they will not do it, if they are unable for whatever reason, then you're treating them like incompetent employees. You just are easing them out. Understand that power breeds nastiness and differentials in power is where that nastiness resides. Embrace the power performance paradox. Downplay status differences within your organization. What a massive red flag that is. And he actually doesn't, even though these are super helpful, I would really love some back pocket questions to ask. Like, I have a really hard time knowing who and what I would ask at either an interview or a walkthrough. How would I know that these kinds of things were happening. I would like a little more on boots on the ground stuff about this. Manage moments, not just practices, policies, and systems, but focus on changing the little things that you and your people do. Unbelievably important. Tone, contemptuous looks, uh, interrupting, any kinds of things like that. And actually one of the real flags that I thought was great was me and I versus we and us. And you can do that in the moment long before this becomes festering. It can become part of the culture to say, no, this is, this is a we, so go on. But what you're saying is we, the team, has done this kind of thing. So those kinds of corrections can be made right now. Model and, con and teach constructive confrontation. Everyone could use this. It would make everyone's lives 
every sector of their life better. And we do not learn this organically. This is not a typical thing that schools teach. Many, 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 no, what am I saying? Most people. It's unusual to have a family that understands and implements constructive confrontation. Adopt the one a-hole rule. Like I said, I don't love the idea of a scapegoat. Link big policies to small decencies. That's great. The next 12, the dozen, is really boots on the ground. It doesn't tell you how to handle them, but it does tell you how to spot them, like a, almost like a bird book. The spotting guide for a-holes. Personal insults. Invading personal territory. Uninvited personal contact. Verbal and nonverbal threats and intimidation. Sarcastic jokes and teasing. Scornful emails. That's contempt. Public shaming or status degradation. Undermining someone's status. Interruptions. Two-faced attacks. Even like glaring and dirty looks and treating people as if they were non-existent. All of those are red flags. This is infectious. It's infectious in that it may make you an a-hole because this is the only way you may perceive that this is the only way to survive or get ahead or that this is the prevailing culture. It's very easy to fall into that trap. You are allowed to walk away from negative environments. Always use we instead of me if possible. And that's a real hard one. And that's a flag, right? If you find that you're in a workplace and you have to say me because otherwise you are constantly ignored or run over, get out. Notice the things you have in common with other people before you hone in on the differences. Again, one of those great things to just take into the outside world with you. A-holery is self-delusional. And that's these important reminders. This organization is effective despite, not because, of demeaning jerks. A-holes mistake their successful power grab for organizational success, but it is a time-limited and a high-liability, high-cost organizational quote-unquote success, which means it's not success. If you can't sustain this upward swing and make it the new normal, so if you use a-holery and become quote-unquote successful, but it diminishes the organization, it wasn't success. When people will only tell you good news and hide bad news like it's in the cat box, that's a red flag. When people have to put on an act, when you or the whatever a-hole is around, when people walk on eggshells rather than do what is best for the organization, that is a massive energetic and cognitive drain for any organization is managing an a-hole's moods. You are being charged a-hole taxes, but you just don't know it. But also this, your enemies are silent for now, but the list keeps growing. Again, a major reason why this is unsustainable because now your energy and cognition is going to be in keeping up this reign of intimidation against a growing list of enemies. It'll feed paranoia. It is self-delusional, and, and I mean that in both a personal way and an organizational way. There is a chapter called The Upsides of A-Holes, and again, I was like, no. No, because when he's talking about the upside, he's talking about, for example, being a, an effective witness, an effective interrupter, someone who can stand up to people and say enough, someone who's an effective boundary maker, how to express 
anger in an effective way. And I would suggest that that means you're not an a-hole. So I don't find any of these effective. I find them all distortions. One of the people, this is what I was alluding to earlier, one of the people he talks about, and a lot of people will talk about this when they extol the idea that being an a-hole is necessary or can be a successful maneuver. Talk about Steve Jobs. You cannot talk about Steve Jobs in one slice of time. He's a perfect example for everything bad about a-holes because he lost his company. It was unsustainable. He was such a jerk. He was kicked out. When he was brought back in, it was under very careful circumstances, which by the way, during his time away, he was so devastated at being kicked out of his company that he did the hard work on himself and agreed when he came back to Apple that he would be surrounded by people who would protect the outside of the circle from his difficulty self-regulating and who would also keep a check on him on the inside, keep boundaries on the inside. And he agreed to that and was extremely successful after that. That is a very different scenario than just saying he was an a-hole and he made it. He did not. He was kicked out. He was devastated. He turned it around. So yet, pick Steve Jobs, but only if you're going to talk about his redemption arc, not his success that was ultimately a massive failure and ultimately not a failure because he learned from it. Founders and upper management can help by fostering a culture that restrains internal competition and fosters cooperation. Subtler approaches are to stop using war metaphors for what is really just doing business. And in some cases, competition, it's so funny, the, some of the most truly competitive in the sense of being healthy businesses that do well in their businesses that I've worked for and with, don't really consider their competition their competition. They send people to, they'll say, oh, you know what, what you're looking for is actually better served by this other company because they know that if they cooperate, the other company will have more of a cooperative relationship with them, or at least the customer will remember them very fondly. And the best companies are ones that say, we create sticky ties to the community. So our employees end up working over there and we end up with different relationships because no company is fully a clone of another one competing for the exact same people. And even if they are, the people that they are quote unquote competing for are not a limited resource. New customers are created every single day. It has to do with that whole idea of the sustainability of an abundance mindset versus the paranoia of a scarcity mindset. The biggest rule and the biggest takeaway of this book is get rid of a-holes right now. If you let them fester, if you give them excuses, it will be too late. They drive the great people away and they hire people just like them. And they infect the ones that are there trying to cope. Brilliant. Read this book. It's engaging. It's short. It's fun. And it's true. And honestly, if businesses took to heart 40% of this book, the world would be a better place.
If you're just joining us, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a show about creativity, community, and career. Anytime you lean in to community, and, and I'll tell you a little secret, I have a note on my computer, on my laptop, I use like little sticky notes, and one of them is a list of my friends. Oh. And I leave it there to remind myself in all of the hubbub and busyness that we do to reach out to those folks to really make a concerted effort to stay in touch with my friends. And I do look at that list and it kind of reminds me to pause for a minute, whether it's an email, a text message, a phone call, making a dinner plan, Mm -hmm. you know, we need tools. (laughs) Life is crazy and and busy. And if you're somebody like me or your A type personality, like you're always doing something. And I think leaning into community and investing in community, it can be as simple as just staying connected with the people you love. I love that nuance of changing it just a little to invest in. Yeah. That's a really nice word change. You know, I did some coach training uh, the year before last, and one of the things that I loved and really took away was the teacher of it saying, the ball is always in your court. There's no other court. So reach out whenever, reach out. Don't, don't say or or reassess I suppose that relationship like if it's always one way and non-reciprocated then that's something to sort of assess your own energy but the ball's always in your court it's up to you to decide what to do but you can always it's open go reach out that's right (laughs) it is it's it's always up to you and 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 I think that you know we have to give ourselves grace and um time to to pause and think about what we want. You know, I, I was thinking a lot about this idea of how do you balance community, creativity, and career? Yeah. First of all, I just want to say that this is, it's a lifelong journey. Mm. It's not something that gets crossed off your to-do list and you're like, <laughs> okay, we're set now. I'm in balance. You know, yeah. like I, it doesn't exist like that. That's, uh, this is about adopting habits and strategies so that you're always checking in with yourself. You're always reevaluating and pivoting and saying, is this what I want? Is this how I want to feel? And this is this what I want to be? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like society tells us that we run, 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 run. And at some magic age, we just stop. Yeah. Yeah. But in reality, like, I think balance is really just a matter of like saying how, and and millennials have taught us this. Mm -hmm. So I just, what an incredible generation, you know, that we can have it all now if we just pause for a minute and carve out some time for ourselves and say, what do we really want things to be like? Right. The, what is the, it all like, you have to know that before you can. That's right. That's right. <laughs> we have to learn to ask for what we want. We have to be able to to be able to ask for what we want, to live in service to others. But in, in order to do so, we have to first live a life in service to ourselves. And I mean that in a kind and caring way, like really love on yourself in a real way, which I think a lot of us, I know for me personally, have a hard time doing. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's drilled out of us early. I was actually thinking about this when you were talking about teaching other people leadership, going out and coaching other people on leadership. I have often, I actually did a presentation on this once that was just, and it was, where did you learn how to lead? What did you learn what bossing is? Did you Mm -hmm. learn it from cartoons? 
Do you learn it from like the the rich guy in the Simpsons? Did you learn it from the Jetsons? Did you learn it from, you know, being a child to parent? Did you learn it from first bosses? Did you learn it from teachers? And so rarely, we it's hard to teach our, it's sort of hard to self-lead because of how little sort of compassionate leadership we ever see. Yeah, exactly. I love that idea of compassionate leadership. And I've actually read about it, listened to podcasts about it. And it's something that I think takes work too, yeah. right? Yeah. And I, I know for myself, like as a leader, and, and I'm a, I have a staff of about 17 people. And there are days when I'm not ready to be the best version of myself. Sure. And those are days when I sometimes will like just tap out for the day because I don't get to really have a bad day if I'm going to be the leader. I need to bring the best version of myself. And so I'll just do something else that day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, yeah. You know, maybe, maybe that's the day that we're going to do some bookkeeping or we're yeah. going to do some social media that day. And, and giving yourself space to not have every day be the perfect day and not every day do you need to be the leader. but uh, when you are the leader, it's really about living in service to others. It's about being compassionate and understanding that you've asked people to follow you mm. on your journey. You've asked people to follow you, mm. to trust you. Um, you. You've asked them if they share your values. If you've, if you've done this right, you know, yeah. you've led with your values. You've asked them to follow you. And that's a, that is a, a beautiful, beautiful experience to have, but it needs to be um, honored in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And that trust piece, you just mentioned it. And I thought that just lands, which is you've asked people to trust you, which means that if your inner voice is sending up a flare, which is, this is not like, I'm not able to provide this for someone else right now, trusting that as well. Yes. Trusting that as well. And that, that it's not that, you know, we have to separate what we do from who we are. Yeah. And a lot of times we conflate, we conflate the two, we put them together and we think that if we do something that's bad, if we act out of character, if we eat the wrong thing, if we skip going to the gym, if we uh, don't take out an hour to play with our kids, mm-hmm. that we're a bad person. But in reality, it's just something we didn't do. Yeah, and... that's, that's such a hard, <laughs> that feels like pushing against an avalanche of societal messages right there. Exactly. And then who we are is such a different, it's so different, right? It is. And And we contain multitudes. And at no fixed point are we, like, there's never a fixed point. There are no fixed points. That's right. (laughs) And, 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 and you know, nothing is bad just because it happens to be taking up too much of your time. That doesn't mean it's bad. That's going to happen all of the time. It's okay for balance to be something that you're constantly having to readdress and, and look back on because even your desires and your your needs will change over time of course you have to reevaluate what balance looks like the fact that you pause recognize stop and do that work that's the victory right yeah yeah i struggle with that i i just feel bad and then it takes me quite a lag time to go oh that feeling is the message <laughs> That feeling is the skill. That's the skill that you've developed. Mm. You are actually able to, like listening to your own body or listening to your mind, listening to your heart, to pick a body part, right? Listening to that and saying, oh, I need something right now. Let me just go ahead, pause and give that to myself. You 
you said that, and my mind immediately went. You said pick apart. I thought listening to my left ankle, and I thought you know the day I did too much garden work, and when I stood up, my left ankle hurt. Started screaming at you. I clearly should have listened to my left ankle a little earlier. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, this is I think life. This is life's work. This doesn't never ends, and if we're able to do that without feeling overwhelmed or uh, tortured by the need to continuously balance our lives, then we can do this forever, right? Yeah. And there are people that I admire, that I look up to, that never, they don't ever retire. And if you want to retire, that's great. You right. know, if you want to go sit on an island or ride your boat or whatever you want to do, but that just are constantly investing in community and like kind of feeding their career or whatever it was that they were interested in, whether it's becoming a mentor or um, advising in some way. And they just kind of live out their whole life right? with all of these components still there because it's imbalanced. Well, retiring as a concept is one of those ones that's always had a, mm, a uh, an, un, uh, an unacknowledged risk, which is it involves putting off all of that richness, uh, all of that uh, sort of attention to the rest of your needs as just as a human being, not a human producer. And yeah. there's a tragedy to investing. It, it, the, 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 the success of that, the payoff of that is if you live long enough yeah. to be able to do that retirement piece and then finally, like, you know, you did a sequential thing. The risk is not living long enough to do that. Yeah. And I've experienced that firsthand. So mm. my mother died when I was 32 and she was 55 years old. Oh. She was diagnosed with cancer in April of 2006 and she died in June of 2006. <gasps> so in three months, everything changed. And she, I, I learned so much from that experience and she was such an amazing person an amazing woman. And so we had a lot of conversations and a lot of conversations about that, about, yeah. you know, not waiting and, right. um, you know, taking every moment for what it is. And, and I think I definitely, like, even this conversation is informed by that experience of losing my mother at a young age. Yeah. Um, and, and I do kind of try to live life every day, you know, because of that. And that's just something that I personally went through. Um, and I don't think you have to go through that to, in order right. to embrace this idea of like, experiencing that. like I said, I think an entire generation of young people have embraced that very thing. I was just and, thinking that. And over yeah. the past four or five years, I've heard conversations about things that I needed and didn't have words for around this topic. Right. You right. know, people saying, well, I am going to choose this, you know, non-product based focus for my life because I don't want to have to wait until the end to actually have depth and meaning and, you know, dignity yeah. in my life. That's right. And coming out of the pandemic, I mean, even beforehand, and but coming out of the pandemic, especially um, in my industry, like nobody in my company works more than four days a week doesn't doesn't exist and they're making great money and they're living right. the life that they want to live and, and most of our shifts are six hours long like 
we're pivoting as, as companies. I was just actually this morning just reading an article about how the four-day work week in Iceland has taken right. off, right? Yeah. And it's a new thing, right? So, like, we're already, like, there's some very institutionalized changes that I think are on the cusp of happening around work-life balance. Yeah. And just kind of putting things more into perspective. And I think it's because of that generation that just kind of demanded it, right? Yeah. And now we're, we're learning it. And they're, become, they're in their 30s now. And they're, this is what they want. And they want their lives to be like. Yeah, I've had a lot of satisfaction. It's funny because I, I'm not by nature much of a nihilist or mm-hmm. uh, what's the opposite of an optimist? Pessimist. I'm not really by nature one of those. But even then I definitely feel a sea change uh, in the, in the past several years, like an, uh, that I'm, I'm very glad to be around for. <laughs> yes. Just super grateful. And you're right. It has to do with a, a whole generational switch over and the generations have gotten to be more manageable sizes. I was talking with someone online about that recently. I think the only reason there are named generations is that the boomer generation is an aberration. It's a blip. And it yeah. just distorts everything around and behind it. And then we are sort of starting to settle back into, oh, there's lots of people of lots of different ages, not so many people of just a few ages. Yes. <laughs> I mean, and you know, we're I'm generation X, right? We're like the, the least parented generation, <laughs> the most overlooked it. generation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I wear it very proudly. I love like the era and the time that I got to grow up. I got to go through high school and college without Facebook, right? So right, right. and then and then it, and then I got to be 25 and then adopt it, right? Mm-hmm. So I feel like I got the best of both worlds and um but, you know, I, we can keep learning now from from the generations that have come and even the Gen Z, you know, below the millennials, like they're even teaching us new things too. Like they want to, they want to see their, their career path. They want to see the path laid out before them. They're more planners. You know, they didn't see the economic collapse of their parents, like during, you know, 2008, it was, it's a little different for them. And so they're really more interested in investing in the long term. And um, I think that's really beautiful too. So just we can take things from from everyone and that's another way to find balance. Yeah. Yeah. And they're very, they're very invested in active work to make sure people get a fair share. And that's been just inspirational. Like that has warmed my heart's my heart beyond anything. Yeah. So let's move into let's move into what you do for creative regeneration. Yeah. Um, creativity has always been a part of my life. My nickname was Timmy Two Shoes because I used to, <laughs> to sing and dance and I wanted to be on Star Search or something when I was a kid and I wanted to be <laughs> on Broadway when I was in, you know, in college and I got the chance to do theater and I actually worked in New York City as a theater producer for the Foundry Theater, which is a pretty famous. Oh, yeah below 14th street east village vehicle and had a, had a career in the arts which was really awesome kind of on the business side mm. uh, but for myself personally uh, creativity is just a part of what i i need mm. and i i definitely struggle with carving out the time to do it. I feel like when I look back on my life, there are these periods where I would write. And then this period where I would really be picking up the guitar almost every day. Mm. And then a period when I like participated in some sort of community theater project. Um, And right now what I'm doing is I'm in a band. 
Oh, wow. With a friend of mine, and we produced like kind of 80s synth pop electronic music and <laughs> put it out on iTunes, like just two middle-aged guys. He's a, a psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a business owner. And so we have this like cool band called Maxwell's Complex. And we just, you know, we play around and have a lot of fun. And then of course I'm on the board of Egg Tooth Productions, which is an amazing mm. arts organization based in Greenfield, Massachusetts. And I participate in the, the holiday show. And so I get on stage and every time I do that, you know, I think I, the one thing about it that makes me feel amazing is being backstage and seeing the stage and a little slice of the audience from backstage. Oh yeah. Right. And the glow of like this kind of bluish light that's back there and you're kind of in the dark and you're, you're having this kind of singular experience, even though everything's happening all around you. Uh, that's one of the things that I really love about doing that. I love that you've picked that moment. Because it's easy to pick the moment when you're out there and the attention is sort of focused on you. There's a certain energetic charge that yeah. we get from that. I love this, that same kind of community's aspect of watching that charge happen with others. It's a moment where you get to think, to remind yourself that you're a part of something. It's And these, I, I always think like one of the great gifts that we get as human beings is we get to reflect. We get to reflect on what just happened, on what we did, mm. on a lifetime if we're lucky, right? And in that moment when I'm backstage, I'm kind of thinking about where I am. It's very like meta. I'm like seeing myself in it and kind of enjoying it at the same time, getting to say like, wow, I get to do this. Wow, this is awesome. Yeah. Um, and that's why I love it. Yeah. 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 It's just a, when you said it, I, I absolutely could visualize it. Like I was like, oh, yes. That. Yeah. Gratitude. Right. I think gratitude is, is probably what's seeping in at that moment. Yeah. Being grateful for the moment. Yeah. Yeah. So creativity, I mean, it's something that I have to put energy into. My friend who I do the music with, he's on my list of friends, mm-hmm. right? So I'm constantly reaching out. It's not like we get together every week, you know, it's like once in a while. And, but I think also creativity for me is also in the way I build my brands and my businesses. So uh, that's a huge yeah. creative outlet for me. Yeah. And I'm very proud of the brands that we've built and whether it's the digital footprint of those brands, which I'm, you know, very much into social digital strategies, marketing strategies, getting people to identify with those brands, whether it's my team, my guests, or the industry as a whole, Mm. all of that is providing a creative outlet for me as well. Like for me, creativity is about putting my finger on what's, cool or what's attractive to people yeah uh creating it and then watching them be attracted to it mm-hmm. i love that right and because it's kind of interwoven with my with what i do for work whether it's yeah. the businesses or even the consulting company that i work for because i run the social digital division it's feeding me creatively that way too mm, yeah what what are some things you aspire to be doing to move into that you're interested in in learning creatively? I would like to get deeper into more digital art. Like I want mm. to, I, I'm doing websites now. So I've been 
over the last year. This is when my, my pandemic thing that has come out. So I kind of created this division within the larger company that I work for, uh, where we're providing social digital services now for small businesses. We'll mm-hmm. manage their social media content. We'll build websites, create branding for them, logos, everything. Yeah. And that's really kind of like sparked me in a big way. I would like to be able to go deeper. I want to learn how to create video. Uh, I would like to get better at graphic design. And I would love to do a project. This is like kind of outside of work. Mm -hmm. This is would be something totally fun that I would just do on the side. I would like to create a, a project that that melds creative placemaking, which is usually something that happens around a physical community, but I want to do it digitally and and create something that is a community hub or like a community convening place, but it's digital and it's living in the digital sphere. So it has an element of user-generated content. Mm -hmm. It has an element of all of the cool branding that I want to do because I want to make people feel like they're a part of something really cool. And then it has maybe even an immersive element to it so that people feel like when they are experiencing it, that they're kind of diving into this like really cool thing. So would this be almost a gaming space or? You know, I'm trying to keep it like super loose. I've been doing a lot of research lately on the old internet, right? So like the early 90s internet. And you could kind of go down these really interesting rabbit holes uh, with some of those websites that you would go into. And I kind of want it to be like that. Like, you know, our friend, John Bechtold, who worked on Sleep No More. If you think of an immersive experience where you walk into a building and then you could just kind of go into all these little dark corners and some things Mm. might happen and some things might not happen. And it's not like you're having the same experience every time. I would want it to be something like that. So maybe you would happen upon a game. Maybe you would happen upon a video or something, uh, audio, or uh, maybe you would be encouraged to create something something that would be left there for Mm. others to happen upon. Mm. That's kind of, that's, it's neat because it's, it's both a sense of game and a sense of performance. This is the new thing that's been brewing in my mind. And Mm. I don't think about it every day because I don't have a lot of time, but like it's, I have been talking about it with some people that I love uh, that I think could, you know, maybe collaborate with. So I'm putting it out there in the ether as kind of my next project. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. What do you wish you had, you can either answer either question, they're, they're both time questions, either what do you wish you had known 20 years ago, or what would you tell your younger self? Oh, I mean, I think my answer is informed by this conversation. So uh, ask me on a different day, maybe it would be a different answer. Oh, sure. but, <laughs> but today it is, I would tell myself, listen, Tim, like the journey is the thing. Mm. There is no, like, you're not trying to get somewhere so that when you're there, then everything's going to be good. Like all of the things leading up to right now, that is your life. That is why you're Mm. here. So don't put so much pressure on yourself um, and don't uh, judge yourself. Give yourself grace every single day because you are on this amazing journey. And that, that is what life is. Mm. I guess I would say something like that because I felt so much pressure. Uh, only child, you know, kind of a child that was underparented, kind of mm. feeling on my own, like that I had to like do all this stuff and that like I wasn't ever really there. I was waiting to get there, wherever mm. there was or whatever it was. And 
now I realize that, that, that that's not it at all, actually. Mm-hmm. Like all of the stuff that I've been doing all along is being there. That was me being there. Mm. And the analogous question, what do you want to tell your future self? Oh, um, I guess I would say congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> I would say like also remember, just try your best to keep looking back and remember where you've come from and what you've seen and what you've done and and, and just be proud of yourself yeah. because I, I think we all deserve to uh, be proud of ourselves. And I think a lot of times we don't give ourselves credit or we're our harshest critics or sometimes even just downright nasty to ourselves. Yeah. yeah. I had a guest who said you need to spend... 20 seconds minimum celebrating something good because we're so sort of wired to jump on and cling on to the negative that anything less than that and it slips away 100 percent. I, I i use gratitude as a tool all the time it's a mindfulness tool that i lean into a lot and sometimes it's even like when i was talking about having a good day as a leader, mm-hmm. going and walking into my businesses. Sometimes I'll, I'll sit in my car before I get out to go into the business and I'll think of five things that I'm really grateful for. Yeah. Because that just centers me and puts me in the right brain space to go walk in and, and serve others and be a leader, live in service to mm-hmm. people. I think it's important that we pause and do that. I, I say like one of my strategies is carve out time for yourself midweek. And make it non-negotiable. It's mm-hmm. two hours. It's in my calendar. And that's another thing. Use a calendar. And it's called Tim Time. And I can do whatever I want with it. But it's completely non-negotiable. I, I can even work if I need to. But it's going to be on my terms. And I can do whatever I want. I love yeah. that it's called Tim Time. <laughs> Tim Time. Yeah. I love a good alliteration. And I, I think another thing, too, that another strategy that I use for balance is I, I plan my year really far in advance. So I already have my 2022 travel schedule completely like planned out. Mm. I have all of the time off that I'm going to take in 2022 already in my calendar. Mm. It's non-negotiable. I have no idea where I'm going, but I know that I'm going somewhere and that's the week that I'm going, right? So (laughs) I, I plan out for myself like that, you know, it does take work and we, you know, if in the absence of planning out time off, like it will get gobbled up by a myriad of things, you know, so just really looking in advance and sitting down with your partner or by yourself, if it's just you and saying, okay, we're going to do this week in the spring. We're going to do this long weekend in the summer. We're going to do this week in the fall. And that's what we're going to do or two weeks or whatever you want. That piece where you just said to talk to someone else, that's the piece I think that's the linchpin, at least for me and for a lot of people I know, as we watch those times we've set aside, just kind of dribble by and go, yeah, 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 that's, yeah, I was going to do that thing. But, you know, it's almost mm-hmm. like that bit where it's, it's almost an accountability piece, but I don't want to use that word because like someone's not holding you accountable exactly, but somehow sharing that so that someone says, but aren't you gone the first two weeks of November being like, uh yeah yeah mm-hmm. and then it's hard it's almost a little harder to face the world and be like yes you know no I, I cleaned my fridge and went to work <laughs> <laughs> that's that's leaning into community right like yeah. I've had people you know because we have this time off I just did a staycation over 
I forget when it was, April, I think it was, mm. because we just weren't ready to travel yet, but I had planned that time off way back mm. in 2020. Awesome. <laughs> so I did a staycation and I had friends checking in on me being like, so what did you do? Did you do, did you decompress? Did you, you know, like that's like leaning into community. And I think it's infectious. And for people, especially our age, right? Like yeah. time off is so precious and it's not part of the norm. And so you know, it gets people excited when you share with them that you've, you're taking this time for yourself and encourage your friends to do the same because we all need a little bit of encouragement now and then. Yeah. And I think there's a, there's something I'm trying to be way more mindful of. It's the way I was raised, but it's also the cultural moment, which is this reflexive comparison where when you see someone do that, I actually have to wait for second and third thoughts because my first thought is, is, you know, often not, not within this conversation, but well, nice for some, you know, well, I don't have that. And to sort of come to a point of saying the world is bigger than that, like make it so that you do. Like if you make it important, then you can figure out, they can now problem solve for ways that you can make it happen. Whereas reflexively saying, oh, well, that's because this kind of, this person's got this kind of job and I don't. Doing that means you've made it so there's no option for it to happen. The ball's always in your court. The ball's always in your court. <laughs> oh, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> I just watched Hold it bounce call. twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, is there is there anything uh is there anything you wanna, you know, think about, know about, talk about with, with uh with the way that you've been able to, you know, as you said, keep rebalancing these three these three parts of your life? Yeah, I would just say like nothing's perfect and it's never perfect. And if I have a feeling like everything is under control, it lasts five minutes <laughs> and I can, that's great. That's awesome. But it's, it's also okay for it to sometimes be chaotic and out of balance and just the, the act of trying to get it into balance is an act of self-care. So bring it on. Mm. I, I relish in the opportunity to mm. do that for myself. Yeah. That's nice as, as a challenge. Yeah. 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 There's a piece of, uh, it came out in research a couple of years ago that reframing stress as challenge, you can't do it all the time, but, but at least starting there can really make your physical sort of, there's physical damage when you are in stress all the time, but reframing it, can change some of that physicality and reduce some of that damage. Yeah, I think that's an amazing strategy. And just even another one that I've, I heard recently is saying to yourself, I feel this way, not I am this way, but like I can feel myself feeling stressed right now. Right. And so you're kind of removing yourself from it instead of I am stressed out. Yes. I'm feeling like I'm feeling kind of stressed right now kind of puts you in that problem solving mode or like you know brings those kinds of problem solving skills into play yes and you use this word earlier grace it gives grace. you a chance for grace just like when you're dealing with a child if you say to a kid you're always a problem versus this seems to be a problem right now you've, right you've radically damaged a child's relationship with themselves and you or you've fostered like further growth exactly <laughs> that's you know it's so interesting how hard it is and this is one of those things about service it's so interesting how hard it is sometimes to have that be like have us mirror that to ourselves 
Yeah. And, but it's a privilege to be able to do it. Mm. Like it's a privilege to be able to look in on ourselves and say, how can we make this better? You know? Yeah. And so honor that privilege and take some time and be proud of yourself. Yeah. It is, it's a life well lived. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, when I'm talking about that transformational versus transactional piece, mm. oftentimes when I'm giving people advice on social media or I'm giving them advice on leadership, I'm like, just do it from a sense of love and wanting to give to others. And you can't do it wrong. Mm. You can't do it wrong. Mm. Like it will be right and it will feel good and you will be happy. <laughs> yeah, you know, you said about the alliteration and Tim time. I've actually shied away. A career works so perfectly with the three and I've ended up swapping it out for work because of how pressured I felt for 40 years that I should be career oriented. And I mm -hmm. didn't. I just worked. I worked at whatever was available. <laughs> so it's such a good, it rolls off the tongue so well. And as you were saying it, I was like, mm, it is good. <laughs> but I think, you know, that's a whole other kind of thing you could say. It's like for me, career versus work is like, work is like you punch in, you punch out. And career is something you, you try to imbibe meaning into. Mm. You know, you try to, you try to like just inject meaning and mm. it could be it could be anything it could be you know we see stories all the time of people doing things that we might not consider to be a career but just work but they're putting so much meaning into it i'd it like to thank this guy bagging i'm trying out his that suggestion is such a nice reframing the idea of, of a hot word for me because thank i you. too yeah, love sure. alliteration <laughs> The this links, has been past so episodes, and more. I want to thank Go you to so working9tothrive.com, and that's where the number nine. This has been great, and I've Follow kind of really media. set up to have an amazing day now. So <laughs> thank you so much. I, like, what am I going to accomplish today? So this is a great conversation, and I just love having the opportunity to talk about it. So thanks, Janet. <laughs>